Oh, if you'll go ahead and turn with me, uh, we're going to go to Joshua chapter 8 this morning, uh, continuing in our walk through the book of Joshua. Um, and I don't know if you've, if you've recognized this or not, maybe you have uh, week after week in the book of Joshua. Um, in a lot of ways, Joshua is a, is a difficult thing for us, or a difficult book for us to read uh, as 21st century American Christians, right? That, um, that it's difficult because in the book of Joshua, God is leading the people of Israel to conquer the land of Canaan. He's calling them to put to death nations. Uh, and, and there's like in the back of our head, we're like, that, that was like a convention that was in Switzerland that says you shouldn't do that, right? Uh, the Geneva Convention, like, where, where, like, how does this all jive? And, and one of the things that I would encourage us, and, and we don't, we don't talk about this all the time, um, but, but some of the things that we carry with us into the text, some convictions that we have about God's Word uh, that help us as we walk through even difficult things. Uh, so just some, some things, that, things that frame how we approach God's Word is, first of all, we believe that the Bible in all of it, in, in its totality, is God's Word to us. Now, it is God communicating uh, who He is, revealing Himself to us. Um, in, in a special way that we would not know him apart from him telling us. Right? In Romans chapter 1, it kind of talks about how uh, there's, there's some general truths about who God is that we can know by looking at creation. But just by looking at creation, we don't gather naturally that we are um, created by God to know him and to walk with him and that sin has separated us from him and that he has provided a way for us to have a restored relationship with him through Jesus. Like right Through creation, we don't hear that the sinless son of God came and died on a cross for us. We don't hear that on the third day he rose again. Like that all comes to us because God has made it known to us by his grace by giving us his word. Uh, and, and, and we say again, in totality, all of it is God's word. In Second or in Second Timothy 3 verse 16, it says all scripture is breathed out by God and is useful to us. It's useful to teach us, to instruct us, to correct us, to rebuke us. Like it's all useful to us. But one of the difficulties is, is when, especially when we're looking at the Old Testament, is we're looking at the Old Testament people of God and we're walking in a New Testament relationship with Him. And so there's a, a covenantal divide between us and the Old Testament that we have to kind of to come to grips with as we read in the Old Testament. So one of the things that we might ask is like, why is it even important that God is giving to the people of Israel the land of Canaan in the first place? Why is it important that God is carving out for himself in the Old Testament a people who are called by his name to walk with him in, in, and for his presence to dwell among them? And, and where we come to this is, it is, as God is walking with the Israelites, as we pick up in Joshua chapter 8, God is, is literally, his presence is literally living with the people of Israel in a way that he is not living with any of the other nations in the world when we come into the Old Testament. Right? That, that they are relating to him. He is their king, he is their God, and they are in walking with him. In other words, the people of Israel are God's tangible, like they're the, the witnesses of God's tangible presence in the nations around them. Now, and we're going to talk about this as we, as we, as we come to application later this morning, but, but we would notice, and, and, we'll, and I don't want to rob too much from later on, but there is no nation that represents that same relationship in terms of a nation-state 
as Israel in the Old Testament. So when we wrestle through this, America is not Old Testament Israel. We, we do not have, and, and I want to be careful on this, as believers we have Jesus as our king. As a nation, it is clearly obvious that Jesus is not king of the United States of America. And we're going to talk about that as we go through, okay? But, but in all that God is doing in the Old Testament, he is demonstrating who he is to all of the surrounding nations through his people. He has a special relationship with them by which all of the peoples around them will know this is who God is. It's this relationship in, uh, that, that he has with the people of Israel that allows Rahab by faith to enter in. And we go and says, I, I, we know who your God is and I want you to spare me and my family. Right By faith because she had seen God's activity through the people of Israel. And so when we come to these difficult passages where it is a, a conquering, uh, it's, a, it's a chapter of conquest, and, and we're going to, at the tail end of it, we're going to see 12,000 people dead, there's some difficulty in that for us. Because, again, as we, and I don't want to rob too much from the end, we're not called to arm ourselves and wipe out people who are opposed to Jesus in the 21st century. Okay? Uh, but what is reflected in this conquest is a spiritual reality that is true in every time and in every place that God holds the nations, he, he raises them up, and he brings their downfall. They, they, are, they, they exist because he allows them by his grace to exist. But he also will call not just all nations, but every individual throughout all of time, he will call them to account for their lives before him as their creator. And so when we see these difficult things in Joshua, Joshua chapter 8, I'm just giving you a little bit of a, a preview before we walk into it. It is, it is screaming to us a reality that we need to pay attention to about the holiness of God that is reflected to us in, in God's relationship with his people and with the surrounding nations. So if that, if that whets your appetite just a little bit, we're going to jump into Joshua chapter 8, which is following, uh, this is going to sound dumb, right after Joshua chapter 7, in, in which in Joshua chapter 7, the people of Israel were just routed, right? In Joshua 6, they had conquered uh, Jericho. They had this amazing victory where God delivered Jericho into their hands. In Joshua chapter 7, they go to the next place expecting the exact same thing, and yet they were completely defeated because they had not all obeyed God's command in regards to what to do to Jericho afterwards. Achan had taken and hidden some things for himself, and and the Lord told Joshua and the Israelites that until they dealt with their sin, they would constantly, like that's all they would experience is defeat. Right, and so Joshua chapter eight follows right after Achan has been singled out. The people have have devoted him to destruction, just as they had the Canaanites before them. And now we pick up what happens next. They've dealt with their sin. Now what happens? So Joshua chapter eight, starting in verse one, we'll read the whole chapter. So uh, buckle in and enjoy the soothing sound of Joshua chapter eight. You can follow along on screen or in your copy of God's Word, uh, and then we'll, we'll we'll walk through this. It says, And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear and do not be dismayed. Take all the fighting men with you and arise, go up to Ai. See, I have given into your hand the king of Ai and his people, his city and his land. And you shall do to Ai and its king as you did to Jericho and its king. Only its spoil and its livestock you shall take as plunder for yourselves. 
lay in ambush against the city behind it. So Joshua and all the fighting men arose to go up to Ai. And Joshua chose 30,000 mighty men of valor and sent them out by night. And he commanded them, Behold, you shall lie in ambush against the city behind it. Do not go very far from the city, but all of you remain ready. And I and all the people who are with me will approach the city. And when they come out against us, just as before, we shall flee before them. And they will come out after us until we have drawn them away from the city. For they will say, they are fleeing from us, just as before. So we will flee before them. Then you shall rise up from the ambush and seize the city, for the Lord your God will give it into your hand. And as soon as you have taken the city, you shall set the city on fire. You shall do according to the word of the Lord. See, I have commanded you. So Joshua sent them out, and they went to the place of ambush and lay between Bethel and Ai to the west of Ai. But Joshua spent that night among the people. Joshua arose early in the morning and mustered the people and went up, he and the elders of Israel, before the people to Ai. And all the fighting men who were with him went up and drew near before the city and encamped on the north side of Ai with a ravine between them and Ai. He took about 5,000 men and set them in ambush between Bethel and Ai to the west of the city. So they stationed the forces, the main encampment that was north of the city, and its rear guard west of the city. But Joshua spent that night in the valley. And as soon as the king of Ai saw this, he and all his people, the men of the city, hurried and went out early to the appointed place, toward the Arabah, to meet Israel in battle. But he didn't know that there was an ambush against him behind the city. And Joshua and all Israel pretended to be beaten before them and fled in the direction of the wilderness. So all the people who were in the city were called together to pursue them. And as they pursued Joshua, they were drawn away from the city. Not a man was left in Ai or Bethel who did not go after Israel. They left the city open and pursued Israel. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Stretch out the javelin that is in your hand toward Ai, for I will give it into your hand. And Joshua stretched out the javelin that was in his hand toward the city. And the men in the ambush rose quickly out of their place, and as soon as he had stretched out his hand, they ran and entered the city and captured it. And they hurried to set the city on fire. So when the men of Ai looked back, behold, the smoke of the city went up to heaven, and they had no power to flee this way or that. For the people who fled to the wilderness turned back against the pursuers. And when Joshua and all Israel saw that the ambush had captured the city, and that the smoke of the city went up, then they turned back and struck down the men of Ai. And the others came out from the city against them, so they were in the midst of Israel, some on this side and some on that side. And Israel struck them down until there was left none that survived or escaped. But the king of Ai they took alive and brought him near to Joshua. When Israel had finished killing all the inhabitants of Ai in the open wilderness where they pursued them, and all of them to the very last had fallen by the edge of the sword, all Israel returned to Ai and struck it down with the edge of the sword. And all who fell that day, both men and women, were 12,000, all the people of Ai. But Joshua did not draw back his hand with which he stretched out the javelin until he had devoted all of the inhabitants of Ai to destruction. Only the livestock and the spoil of that city Israel took as their plunder, according to the word of the Lord that he commanded Joshua. So Joshua burned Ai and made it forever a heap of ruins, as it is to this day. And he hanged the king of Ai on a tree until evening. And at sunset, Joshua commanded, and they took his body down from the tree and threw it at the entrance of the gate of the city and raised over it a great heap of stones, which stands there to this day. 
At that time, Joshua built an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, on Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the people of Israel. As it is written in the book of the Law of Moses, an altar of uncut stones upon which no man has wielded an iron tool. And they offered on it burnt offerings to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. And there in the presence of the people of Israel, he wrote on the stones a copy of the Law of Moses, which he had written. And all Israel, sojourner as well as native-born, with their elders and officers and their judges, stood on opposite sides of the ark before the Levitical priests, who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord, half of them in front of Mount Gerizim, and half of them in front of Mount Ebal, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded at the first to bless the people of Israel. And afterward he read all the words of the law, the blessing and the curse, according to all that is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses commanded that Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel, and the women and the little ones and the sojourners who lived among them. We start off in Joshua chapter 8 with an, an interesting command. Uh, the Lord returning to something that he had said similar to Joshua in chapter 1, which is, don't fear and do not be dismayed. Now, that might seem like kind of an interesting thing because they'd already had an amazing victory in Jericho, right? I, they've seen the Lord fight on their behalf, and when the Lord fought on their behalf, I, it was incredible. And yet... We've talked about this before. Whenever the Lord commands, do not be afraid or do not be dismayed, it's probably there because circumstances would tell you, you should be afraid. Circumstances would tell you, this is kind of a fearful thing that you're walking into. And yet the Lord says, don't do that. And so the interesting question is, like, well, what is there in this situation that Joshua would be tempted to respond to in fear? And if you just tracked up into Joshua chapter 7, verse 10, I think you would find it pretty clearly. Joshua, in Joshua chapter 7, verse 10, is in the middle of, he has just laid his complaint before the Lord because they just got routed in this very same place that they're getting ready to fight at again. And he's, he's, he's asking the Lord, why did you not fight for us? Because like we went in there and we were slaughtered and now nobody's afraid of us. And, and there's no way that we could possibly ever beat anybody in battle again, which is bad enough. But then the Lord said to Joshua, remember, get up, why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned, they have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They've taken some of the devoted things, they've stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. But then the scary thing, remember, therefore the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. So the last time Joshua speaks to the Lord about battle, it is, you have no hope. Right? You are, like, you're destined to run away from every conflict because I'm not with you. You sinned against me, and so I'm not going with you into battle. So then in Joshua chapter 8, it's kind of an important thing for the Lord to say, Joshua, I'm sending you back out. Don't be afraid and don't be dismayed. In other words, that Joshua is being asked to respond in faith to, to what God has said is true. That if they deal with their sin issue, that God will, in fact, go with them again. Right? That's a big step of faith, because the thing that they most recently experienced was, we went to go fight these people, they routed us. And the only difference, the only difference between this time and last time 
is that they just burnt a bunch of stuff that God said to burn. Nothing has changed in terms of who they are as a military. Nothing has changed in terms of, of who Joshua is as a leader. Nothing has changed about I and, 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 and where it sits as a, a city and its fighting men. The only thing that has changed is they said that they did what God told them to do. And yet within that, isn't that, like, there's probably, we see a little bit of humanity in this, isn't there? Like, how many of you, I don't know, we'll, we'll do a little experiment. How many of you ever as a child, you may not even remember when it happened, were told don't touch that hot oven or hot stove? How many of you touched that hot stove? Right? If somebody were to say to you, hey, don't be afraid, go ahead and touch that hot stove. After you had touched the hot stove, how many of you would do that? Yeah, no. I, I, I seem to have something in my working memory bank here. It burnt my finger, not my brain. Or that hurt. I don't think I'll do that again. In essence, like they, Israel just touched the stove, but it wasn't necessarily like like they they, they the, but their 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 fundamental folly was they hadn't listened to the Lord. Like the whole reason that they're able to go into battle and have victory is because the Lord goes with them, and the Lord didn't go with them last time. But now Joshua is being reassured by the Lord: Don't be afraid, don't be dismayed. Like what you have done in faith, like is acceptable, and you can go into battle. This is a step of faith. Believing that what God has said is true, even when circumstances say something different. Right? That's a nice picture of faith, is believing that what God has said is true, even though circumstances say otherwise. And then acting on that belief, that conviction. Right? So, so faith is not just a right understanding of who God is. It's not just Joshua saying, I, I really think that God could give us the victory if he wanted to. I really think God is with us, but we're going to stay in camp. That's not faith. That's a right belief that God, if he goes with them, will give them victory. But it's not really faith until he says, okay, let's go out and take all of our fighting men and go into battle again. Regardless of what circumstances might say. And in in this case, he says, uh, starting in verse 2, he says, gather all of the fighting men. Actually, that's also in verse 1. uh, take all the fighting men with you, not just two to, to three thousand like you took last time. And, and one of the things is, is that all of the people need to see God's provision, not just this small little handful of them. All of the people need to see God's faithful provision to his people, especially after they have just uh, sinned in, 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 in amazing fashion to withdraw God's presence from their midst. They need to see the restoration. They, all of the people need to see God's faithfulness in action. And it's born with the promise, I'm giving you, or I have given you. Before they've ever walked into battle, I, see, I've given him into your hand. I've given the king, I've given his people, I've given the city, I've given the land. Everything I have given to you, the promise. And that it have the same treatment as Jericho received, except for this time you can take plunder. I'm just going to give you a quick summary of verses 3 through 29. Israel goes into battle doing exactly what the Lord tells them to do, and they experience an overwhelming victory. We would be wrong 
to walk into Joshua chapter 8 and say the ambush is, 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 is symbolic of how you ought to deal with this problem in your life. The reality is, is that Joshua chapter 8 is relaying to us a historical narrative of what God did. Right? Like there's not necessarily a hidden meaning of how Israel went into battle. They simply did what God commanded them to do. In verse 7, you see, he says, You shall rise up from the ambush and seize the city, for the Lord will give it into your hand. The Lord will do it. In verse 8, you shall do according to the word of the Lord. That refrain is seen over and over again. Do according to the word of the Lord. Do what the Lord tells you to do. Which is notable, not because of their strategy, but because of who is with them and who is giving the battle to them. It really doesn't matter whether, whether the walls fall down or they set an ambush. It will only be successful in Joshua. It will only be successful if the Lord is the one who goes with them. It will only be successful as far as they listen to and trust the Lord. In verse 18, it says, The Lord tells Joshua, Stretch out your hand because the Lord is giving it to you. So Joshua, and I love it, so Joshua stretched out his hand. The the whole picture of this is Joshua and the people of Israel obeying what God has told them in stark difference to what just happened in Joshua chapter 7, where they did not, to a person, all do exactly what God told them to do. They're to to appear defensive, and and it tells you how one-sided the previous battle had been. Because when they appear to be defenseless and fleeing, the king of Ai leaves the city undefended and just chases them with everything. That's how one-sided the first one was. Like, he doesn't care that they now come with 30,000 people instead of two to 3,000 people. It was so one-sided. It was like, I think that's probably a battlefield one-on-one. Don't leave your fortress undefended. It could be like, that might be number two, but it feels like it's pretty high on the list. Right, But it speaks to how overwhelmingly they had defeated the Israelites when the Lord was not with them previously. But now, because the Lord is with them, the city is delivered to them. So we see, first of all, this is overarching. One of the big things that you take away from this is obedience to what the Lord says. That's what the people of Israel are to do. That's how they're to go into battle. That's how they're to do everything they do, is in obedience to the Lord. The second big takeaway in verses 25 through 29, is the severity of sin. The severity of sin so much so that an entire city is destroyed, not because they stand in the way of Israel's occupation of the land and they're just innocent bystanders and and then they want that city. But remember, all the way back to the promise that God had given to Abraham, he said, your your, your offspring are going to go into captivity 400 years, four generations because the iniquities of the Amorites and the Canaanites hasn't, 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 hasn't stored up enough yet. In other words, like they have more time. I'm giving them patience. But there, is, there comes a point when the Lord executes right and perfect justice on people who are running contrary to who he is. There's a very real picture of, of, of the treatment of sin before a holy God through the physical means of battle in the Old Testament. 12,000 dead, none surviving left forever in a heap of ruins, and the leader in whom they trusted, dead and buried alongside of them. In other words, the things that the Canaanites depended on could not deliver them 
when they were standing to give account before a holy God, the God who created them. And just to give you a little earmark, I still don't love that. Israel was treated in exactly the same fashion when they didn't obey. They were just routed in battle because they were disobedient to the Lord. Sin is severe. We talked about it a little bit last week, but it's important to come back to it. Oh, I think we often neglect to understand how severe our sin is before the God who created us. How serious it is before the Lord. And then at the tail end of the chapter, and we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna walk this into some application here in a moment for you and I in the 21st century. But right after they, they, they achieve the victory, in verses 30 through 35, there's a renewal of the covenant. And, and it would be helpful. Uh, it's, it's a really short section in Joshua, but it incorporates a ton of material out of Deuteronomy. So in Deuteronomy 27 through 29, God commanded Moses to tell the people that they were to do this very thing once they come into the land of promise. That they're to build an altar on Mount Ebal and they're to renew the covenant and they're to, to write the law on these new tablets and there's to be half of the people standing in front of this mountain and half the people standing in front of this mountain and they're to be recounted all of the blessings for obedience and all of the curses that they can experience for disobedience. And what's kind of fascinating about this is that they don't take this vow or they don't say amen to the things that they are told in a, in a vacuum. It comes right on the heels. They have experienced what it is like when God fights for them. And they have experienced what it is like when they disobey and God does not fight for them. So when you have the blessings for obedience and the curses for disobedience laid side by side, all you have to do is look back to Joshua 6 and 7. This is a people who understands tangibly what it looks like for God to be with them and for God not to be with them. But it's also to be the guiding principle of how they walk with the Lord as soon as they take possession of the land. They are constantly to be marked by obedience and not disobedience. And maybe the heartbreaking thing for us is we know the rest of the Old Testament, don't we? This looks really good. They're committing to follow the Lord with their whole heart. They're committing to do all that He calls them to do, and 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 they're committing to be all that He calls them to be. How many books of the Bible later does it take for us to go, this people isn't getting it? By the end of Judges, the refrain is, all of the people are running rampant, doing whatever they think is right in their own sight. All of the prophets in the Old Testament are speaking to a people who are not listening and obeying the Lord. They're constantly calling the people to repentance. Remember the Lord who brought you out of slavery. Remember the Lord who delivered you in battle. Remember the Lord. Turn away from wickedness and seek the Lord. Put away the idols that you just, like you just brought into your midst from all of the people of Canaan that you weren't supposed to adopt. Right? Like that's the, if you summarize the, the role of all of the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, over and over again, what are they telling the people of Israel? Stop it. Return to the Lord. Right? And so right here at the end, you see this great picture that they, they understand and they're, they're vowing to follow it. Just as Moses laid out for them. And you can go back and look. Deuteronomy 27 through 29. And it, and, and it lays out all of the blessings and all the curses. Notably, what they have experienced in Jericho and I. 
And the blessings and the curses, when it talks about them being blessed for obedience, it talks about how the people of Israel, like very few of them, will put a whole, a whole army to flight. But when they're cursed, they will be put to flight even though they outnumber the enemy. Like, tangible thing. They're walking in it. They live in it. So then, if we have a good enough foundation here off of Joshua chapter 8, we ask the question, like, okay, what does that mean for, uh, for people uh, in the church who have come near by faith in Jesus in the 21st century. If we're not called to leave the church armed with weapons, ready to do business, what are we supposed to be doing? What is it that God is calling us to do? And if I take you back to the beginning of, of, of where we started before we read the passage, God's tangible presence is seen in the Old Testament through his relationship with the people of Israel. In the New Testament... Where is God's tangible presence seen in the world today? It's in his church. How is the church formed in the New Testament? Like, and, and I don't want to also diminish that the role of the Old Testament Israel is to pave the way for Jesus to come so that we would see him for who he is. The right Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So the church is formed by God's Spirit as God's people respond in faith. And, and, and before they respond in faith, they are not his people. They respond in faith to Jesus dying in their place, being raised in victory, and trusting him as their focus in life and death. So the, the church is formed because Jesus dies for sinful people and calls them to himself creates new people. He causes us to be new creations by His Spirit. In His ministry, Jesus ushers in the spiritual kingdom of God. He doesn't set up. Like, and this is exactly what old, uh, all of the people were expecting when Jesus came. This is what they expected in a Messiah. They expected somebody who was going to reestablish the physical throne of David and reestablish the nation-state of Israel that would kick Romans behinds and establish once again Israel as God's people among the nations. Instead, Jesus ushers in a spiritual kingdom that is not bought into through ethnicity or blood, but rather, John 1 tells us, that it is born by, by, by the Spirit and not, you're not born into it physically. You're born into it spiritually. So much so that we are now not just uh, citizens of the nations that we were born in, but more so as believers in Jesus, we are citizens of that kingdom where he has our highest loyalty, our lives are hidden in him. And there comes a day through the, the, the scope of the New Testament, if we walk this all the way through to Revelation, we recognize that all nations still rise and fall before him. And yet his kingdom is a spiritual kingdom. So having said that, it would be foolish of us and I, I hope you wore closed-toed shoes. This might hurt. I don't know. Maybe it will. Maybe it won't. Actually, before I do this, Ephesians chapter 6, uh, verses 10 through 12. Maybe a familiar passage, maybe not a familiar passage. Paul is writing to a church in Ephesus, a New Testament church, telling them to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. That's verse 10. And he's telling them how, like, what kind of warfare they are engaged in. 
They're not in, engaged in the, and you and I are not engaged in the warfare of ancient Old Testament Israel. We're engaged in a different type of warfare. He says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Notice this, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present age, um, over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. In other words, what Paul is trying to prepare the New Testament Christian for is that you are, you are engaged every day. You are engaged in a battle. You are engaged in a struggle. And it's not the struggle between uh, that physical kingdom and this physical kingdom. It is a wrestling between the Spirit of God inside of you and the Spirit of the age at work all around you. Not only that, but, but we would also see throughout the New Testament that the struggle is also inside of us. The, the working of the flesh versus the work of the Spirit. And these two things are at odds with each other. But, having said that, a spiritual kingdom with a spiritual opponent that will be called to spiritual account. It would be foolish of us to think whether we lived in the United States or any other country in the world, but we'll deal with the one we live in. It would be foolish of us to think, based off of the Old Testament stretching into the New Testament, it would be foolish of us to think that our sins will not be called to account as a nation. It would be foolish of us to think that there is a blind eye towards the national sins that are committed in the place where we live. In other words, like God will call all nations to account. And we're going to talk about, like, well, what does it look like for us to live as strangers and aliens in the country in a moment? But I just want to, if you go, like, our country doesn't seem that bad. It seems a little off track, but it doesn't seem that bad. I just want to give you some, some statistics, okay? Of, and, and I want to ask you the question as we look at the statistics. Do we believe that God will just brush over this and not look at it, and it will not stand before a holy God and deserve to give an accounting. From 1973 to 2021, 63,459,781 children killed in the womb. So we could probably extrapolate that out two more years. Easily 65 million lives that have been snuffed out in our country alone. Do we have the audacity to tell the God who created us, I think we get a pass for that? I don't think we'll ever have to answer for that. Since 2007, according to this is one website, and this is only what is identified, so we could probably extrapolate it out and say it's a lot huger issue than what it is. But just identified since 2007, 165,000 victims of human trafficking in our country. In other words, 165,000 people either kidnapped or sold into a modern-day human slavery in our country under our noses. And we would say, I don't think our our nation will have to give an answer for that. Every year, nearly 23,000 homicides in our country every year. We could probably extrapolate that out and say it's probably higher than that. Well, I'm glad I'm not doing any of those three things. In our country, every year, 
over a hundred billion dollars of goods are shoplifted. A hundred billion dollars losses taken across our businesses because people take what is not theirs. Well, that's not that serious, is it? Is it covered in the Ten Commandments? hundred billion dollars of things taken. That's just shoplifting. We could probably extrapolate that out and say, how many more things are stolen, taken, that do not belong to somebody? And what does that reveal in the state of a heart of a people who does that? As near as they can figure, $150 billion of profit from illegal drugs in our country every year. $150 billion profit from illegal drugs. And all of that is saying, without even touching the greatest affront to the God who created us, which is the worship of anything and everything other than Him. I don't say to me, like, wow, we're really horrible people, but as a nation, we would say, we will stand before a holy God, or our nation will, will like, He raises them, they fall before Him. Would any of us Seek to say to a holy God who calls us to account. Yeah, but if you only understood all of the good things that we did. Right? We look at the Canaanites and go, they must have been some really horrible, wicked people. And surely they were before a holy God. But this is just the outpouring, and, 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 and I hope I hit this appropriately for you. This is just the reality of our country. We could very quickly look at the realities of other countries and go, you guys are so messed up. I can't believe the things you tolerate. And the reality is is that any nation in and of itself that is filled with sinful people is going to do sinful things. And that sin is severe before a holy God. So then the question is, okay, if we are a, if we are a people who are part of God's spiritual kingdom, who are living in an earthly kingdom that is, is, is kind of messed up, and when I say kind of messed up, is very messed up. What are we to do as New Testament Christians? And I, I want to give you kind of a twofold. One is a practical, and the other, and, and the second is is more of how we walk as believers in this place. But in Jeremiah chapter twenty nine, I think there's a really practical instruction that is for God's people in in all places in all times. But in Jeremiah chapter twenty nine. Jeremiah is writing to and speaking the word of the Lord to uh, uh, the people of Israel as they are later on, way after Joshua, in captivity in Babylon because God has finally called Israel to account. And part of his calling them to account is they are taken as captives into a foreign nation. And he's writing to a remnant of people who have not either died uh, uh, fled somewhere else, died of famine, died by the sword. Like they're, they're a remnant of faithful Israelites who have been affected by the sins of their people. Right? And, he's, and, and Jeremiah is writing to them about what they are to do while they're in captivity. Recognizing they are there for Israel in, in Babylon. They're there for 70 years. But he says to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile... Notice that, whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. 
plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Now, if I could just summarize that in a, in a practical way, it would be to cultivate peace where you live. Live a life that honors the Lord where you are. Whether you were born in Libya or whether God has brought you here uh, through a variety of other circumstances, cultivate, first of all, starting here in Libya, cultivate peace here. Live a life that honors the Lord here, recognizing, and this is kind of the upside-down part of it in a way, that the welfare of Libby is your welfare. You're not completely disentangled from it. It's not just those people over there and I live here at a distance. You're part of the community. You live in a way that honors the Lord. And you see, some of this is just, you live everyday life. You build houses, you plant gardens, you take, like your kids get married, they have children. Like it's just, you, you live a life that is honoring to the Lord where he has planted you. But then, that's just the practical side of it. So the first part is a practical concern. Live a life that's honoring to the Lord physically where he has you. But the second one is how do you live life in, in, a, in, in a nation that is not honoring to the Lord in, in whatever variety of ways that is not honoring to him? The second one is the kingdom concern. So the first one is the practical concern. You live your life, you seek the welfare of the city, but that's the, one of the ways that we seek the welfare of the city is by having a kingdom mindset where we live. Remember, if you are in Christ, which kingdom are you first and foremost giving priority to? The spiritual kingdom of God or the kingdom where you live. The place that gets your highest or ought to get your highest priority is God's kingdom. And to, to kind of maybe flesh this out and, and, and maybe I hopefully don't pull the illustration too far. But if you, if you just draw this down to back to Joshua chapter 8 and thinking of of, of of two kingdoms, or one kingdom versus every other kingdom in the world. You and I, if we are in Christ, and we've been brought into the spiritual kingdom of God through faith in Jesus, we have been made to be ambassadors for him. And I just want you to imagine, if you can just picture in your mind a map, and there's little little outposts of the kingdom of light all over the place that represent the one great high king, you and I, the task that we have been given is to take terms of surrender into every other kingdom. In other words, the kingdom of light, Jesus has already achieved victory over sin and death. And he will return, consummating his kingdom forever. But in the meantime, he has given us his terms of surrender for every other people. In other words, this is how to have peace with the king who owns everything. And we go into all of the other kingdoms, into our kingdom, telling people how he has made peace with them. People who are hostile and openly rebellious towards him, running away from him as fast as they can. And our job is to go taking terms of peace to those who will hear it and receive it. Inviting them in 
through the same faith in Christ that brought us into the kingdom. We don't just sit back and twiddle our thumbs and go, well, this nation is headed to hell in a handbasket. I guess we'll just wait and see what happens. Because we don't wrestle with flesh and blood. There is a spiritual battle for the souls of people taking its place all around us, and you and I have been given marching orders to go and issue terms of peace through the gospel that Jesus has already paid for their sin, and if by faith they walk, they receive him, they will be transferred from darkness into the kingdom of light. So the practical concern is you, 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 you live and you, you pursue the physical peace of the place that you live, like we cultivate, we want to see our community improved in a physical way. But even far more than that, we desire to see our community transformed as people are transferred from darkness into light. As people are transferred from death into life. And our lives ought to be marked in the process. I guess two, two, two things that I would call us to be marked on. If our faith is in Jesus, if he has transformed us, if he has brought new life into us, one of the things that ought to mark our life, this isn't exhaustive, but one of the things that ought to mark our life is humility. The only difference between us and somebody who is still walking in darkness is that we have received the good news. That we've already experienced the grace of Jesus. And that apart from his grace, we are no different than anybody else walking around us. Apart from the grace of Jesus, there is no transformation that takes place in our life. There is no amount of good things that we can do to, to bridge the gap between us and the God who created us. So marked by humility, but then it's also our lives ought to be marked by obedience. In John chapter 14, Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Think about it. If you love me, you'll do what I say. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. You drop down into, into to verse 21 of John chapter 14. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. And Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? And Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he'll keep my word. And my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever doesn't love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father who sent me. Now you Remember, why were the people of Israel in Joshua chapter 8, why were they successful in the battle that we just looked at? Because they did exactly what God told them to do. There's, there's, there is a, a connection from Old to New Testament that God's people obey Him. They hear His voice and they do what He says. And the great temptation, if you, again, if you think about this in your, your brain, this map with, with spotlights of, of, of kingdom of light, outposts shining in the darkness, the great temptation as it was for the people of Israel, it still is today, 
that we would make a peace with the world that adopts all of its ways of thinking and discards the word of truth. But we're not called to just be content citizens of the place that we live. We are called to be active participants in the kingdom that God has ushered in through Jesus.